There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. You tune to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Grab a box of tissues because we're going to laugh and we're going to cry in today's show. My guest is Nils Jorgensen. Nils served in the U.S. Army Reserve and New York Army National Guard for eight years as a combat medic and military police officer and two years as a police officer on the New York City Police Department before serving 22 years as a New York City firefighter with the Fire Department of New York. Nils and I were both at Ground Zero 22 years ago yesterday, although amidst obviously all the chaos, we didn't know that at the time. And while as a civilian, I was going away from the danger, he and his fellow firefighters were rushing toward the danger. Nils was forced to retire in 2012 at the rank of lieutenant after he was diagnosed with leukemia linked to his service at Ground Zero on and after September 11, 2001. He's currently a board member at Cauley Strong Foundation, which assists in providing counseling and resources for teens battling mental illness. The organization also provides emotional support dogs for U.S. service veterans experiencing post-traumatic stress. Nils describes himself as a blessed cancer survivor, a husband, the father to three wonderful adult children, a friend, son, and brother. He's certainly all those things and much, much more. Nils Jorgensen, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the uh, kind words and intro, uh, and it's a pleasure to be here. Absolute honor to have you here, sir. Nils, your dad was a firefighter for 34 years. You were a firefighter for 22 years before your career was cut short because of a health crisis that resulted from 9-11. Help us understand the strength of tradition and the family bonds among those who have served and do serve in the FDNY and the NYPD. Sure thing, Chris. Um, I think traditionally, way back when the departments were started, uh, the, the job was occupied by many new immigrants to America. Uh, a lot of Irish, German, Italian immigrants that were first coming over, and it offered a good job security. And, you know, and my father grew up very humble and somewhat on, you know, somewhat poor at times, I guess. Uh, his father was an uh, immigrant from Denmark, my grandpa Nils, who I was named after, and his mom was an orphan. Uh, parents had come from Ireland and they passed away shortly after. So he's very humble and he very much appreciated the security of a civil service job in the fire department. He started as an Air Force um, crash or air crash rescue firefighter up in Newburgh, New York um, in the 50s. And um, he then subsequently went on to New York City Fire Department. So I uh, became very captivated with what he did as a young boy. Um, was born and spent like first five years there. So occasionally I'd get to go by his firehouse uh, to visit him when he was on duty. And then a real treat was the firehouse that was on the corner where we lived in 67th Street, 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge. Occasionally he would fill in there or if there was a big fire working in the area, we call it relocation. So you're pulled in to kind of cover that area. See my dad, you know, driving by in a truck right in front of my house. And it was, you know, I'd be waving at him, chasing the truck with my big wheel, you know, sometimes race him for the first 20 feet. And then they would just shoot by and uh, a bunch of guys with mustaches laughing at me. So I just realized about five years old, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and 
you know, I took all the civil service tests, uh, like most of the young guys I grew up with in Staten Island. We all had civil servant fathers and we wanted to follow them. We really respected them. And uh, I tested for corrections, police, fire, spent some time, very, very short time at New York City EMS prior to its merge with the fire department and then resigned from there to become a police officer. Did short of two years there and then moved on to my my dream job, uh, my priesthood, as I called it. It was just incredible. And uh, I was getting a chance to be my dad. And uh, I grew up admiring the man. You know, he was my role model. Um, I actually, I'm not much of a tattoo guy, but I have a tattoo of his badge on my arm. And it says, with FDMY around it, my example, my hero, my father. And uh, I had the honor of carrying on his badge number after he retired. So I considered that one of the highest honors of my life and um, just grew up, you know, watching what he did, you know, coming home smelling like smoke. And, you know, he'd tell you an occasional story. He's not a boastful guy, but he'd tell you about the perils of the previous night shift. And uh, once I got my chance to do it, it was like, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living my dream. And, you know, a lot of the guys that were in my training class, as we call proby school, same thing. They were just following their dads. And it, was, it wasn't easy to get that dream. I mean, there were 77,000 guys that took our test in 1987 uh, for probably 2,500 spots. So you really had to want that job. And uh, I was blessed to have it. I truly miss it. And I'd give anything to go back. But um, unfortunately, when you have um, cancer, and technically what I have is incurable, but I've been in full remission, which is a, a daily blessing. But uh, I could not pass a medical back in 2012, and that's when the department uh, basically put me off on retirement. There's a my listeners know that there's uh, that I'm a huge country music fan, and there's a country singer named Luke Combs, and there's a line in one of his songs that says, "Where daddies are honored and mamas are loved," and it's great to hear your tribute. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, my parents are my idols. Um, you know, my mom's an immigrant off the boat from Ireland, came here at 16 and just instilled those values of hard work and, and, you know, love of family, love of God, love of country. So I, I totally relate to that song. hundred percent, hundred percent. And you mentioned priesthood. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show. Uh, yeah. I'm also laughing as you were telling the story of a kid watching the fire trucks go by and you see these guys in mustaches waving and laughing at you. And here you yeah. are. With a yep, full I'm mustache. mustache. I, That's I, I it. love it. I love it. Like, kind of my dad. <laughs> I got the seventies, the seventies FDMY truckie. Uh, it's coming back, rocking. So, yep, that's it. So, Nils, what firehouse were you assigned to, and what were those twenty-two years as a firefighter like for you up to September eleventh, two thousand and one? Um, the day of nine eleven, I was assigned to this ladder company, ladder company one fourteen, uh, lovingly known as Tally Ho. Uh, Tally Ho stems from a Airborne Ranger Jack Carroll, who jumped Normandy in World War II, and uh, they would yell tally-ho when they jumped out the planes. So when we first got radios, he refused to say 10-4. When he responded as the ladder company chauffeur, which was the driver, he would say 114 tally-ho. And it was really ticking off the dispatchers, but all of a sudden it started to catch. So now all these years later, out of 340, excuse me, 350 engine company and ladder companies throughout New York City, uh, 114 is the only one to have the proud, uh, I guess, bragging rights of being called by their nickname, not their number. 
So it kind of pisses some guys off. So if, if you know, if I'm wearing a shirt and I hear, you know, if you tally ho, I know it's some guy, I know it's a guy from the Bronx that's just, you know, kind of wishing he was in 114. So, uh-huh. so yeah, so I was assigned to my beloved tally ho that morning, uh, spent eight years there until I was promoted to Lieutenant, uh, in spring of 2002. But, um, that particular morning I was off duty, uh, on one of my moonlights. I had three jobs at the time. Uh, my wife and I were trying to do that old school, you know, keep her at home with the babies. And, and, uh, and it was really working out pretty good. And I loved every minute of the, of the job. Uh, even, even during and after nine 11, as crazy as that sounds, it's crazy. You know, the, the sadness and the death and but we were still the guys we were still together and we were facing it and dealing with it together so as sad as it could be it was still you were with your brothers and you were going to get through it together um i i had a blessed career i you know, started out in ladder 105 down near barclay center um i spent three years there was in a really bad um fire truck wreck which I found out years later, I had actually fractured my cervical seven. Um, that night I was in the hospital when it happened. Father Michael Judge was there to tend to my family and myself. And he actually loaded me into the Cascan tube and put his hands on me and blessed me. And, um, you know, we had a couple of laughs and I was tearing up a little because I thought I was paralyzed. And I said, Father, I missed mass today. It's Sunday. Um I'm sorry. And I said, I'll, I'll try to get to the chapel here in the morning. And he laughed. He said, listen, if you try to tell God what you're doing tomorrow, he's going to laugh at you. Let's get through tonight. And they really couldn't figure out what the heck happened with me initially. And then about six years later, I was in a collapse. And the the one doctor who was a, a combat surgeon over in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, he, he uh, you know, during both wars, he looked at me and uh, he also served on the fire department medical board. And he's looking at this old fracture and it's healed in. And he says, what are you doing on the job? You you, you, had, you had a bad injury within the last 10 years and told him about this accident. He says, what happened? I said, well, Father Judge, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but he put his hands on me and that's what going in the CAT scan tube. And then after that, they couldn't figure out exactly what happened. And he goes, I know what happened. He goes, Father Judge healed you. He, just go back to work. That's it. Don't tell anybody, you know, so um did a short time ladder 82 uh, in Staten Island healing up, but uh, my heart was in Brooklyn. I wanted to get back and uh, I got back to 114 and um, I had served under a Lieutenant Dennis Oberg, who was assigned to the uh, engine company 219, the sister engine of 105. And he was an old tally home man until he was promoted. And he was lucky enough to get back to 114 as a Lieutenant. So he kind of wrote me in uh, and I ended up with him in 114 and the the sad connection, I guess you could say, or irony between the two ladder companies. Um, in 1993, as while serving in 105, I was at the first collapse. Um, we were there a couple hours later as, as a relief unit, as we call them. And um, the senior firefighter that day was a gentleman, Henry Miller. And I was under his wing. You know, as a younger guy, they want you underneath the wing of a, of a senior guy who's going to make sure you don't get hurt. And, and Henry, sweet man, just looked around and he's just, you know, very soft-spoken. And he said, ah, kid, you know, they they blew it off over there in the middle. Um, they're they're going to do it in a corner next time and take out a supporting column. And he said, they'll drop the building to Ch- uh, Canal Street in Chinatown. And he says, they're not going to give up. They'll be back. We'll fast forward to 
the morning of September 11th. I'm off duty. Dennis Oberg is on duty as the platoon leader of Ladder 114. And Henry Miller is the senior man in Ladder 105. And under his charge this time is Dennis Oberg Jr., my lieutenant son. And um, uh, Hank, as we loved him, was killed with Dennis Jr. And I guess in a way, like he prophesied, he almost knew that they were, he said they were going to come back. And they did. And then in the 90s, in the late 90s, there was a train manual with a, a picture of the trade towers with a target on it. And it said, not a matter of if, but a matter of when, be ready. And it was just almost as if people knew this was coming. But Hank and his soul knew it was coming. And uh, the cruel irony is Dennis saved the on-duty platoon in Ladder 114. He heard something. He heard the crack of, a, of an I-beam or some structural member. And, and he saw, he just looked up and saw something not right. And, and he told the men just to turn around and charge. And it was the building coming down. And um, he did the same thing in the next collapse. They survived both of them. And... He was well aware that his son was working and um, he knew that day that he looked for 105 specifically and found their truck. He found Dennis's shoes uh, in the truck because he was wearing his gear. And um, he knew that afternoon that his son was gone and he he got a ride from MITPD back to Brooklyn to tell his wife that their son was gone. So the connections between those ladder companies and those men are extremely uh, strong for me, you know, and just, um, but still I, I give, I give anything to be back with them. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm bouncing kind of all over. It's a little tough, but so, yeah, I was driving an oil truck that morning of nine 11 and I saw, I heard on the radio news that, you know, what was going down and, you know, initially they don't want you just running in on your own freelancing, so to speak, you have to be with a unit and under command, so I raced into 114 in Brooklyn. Um, I called into the command and uh, upper command, and they just said, look, get a bunch of guys, sign in. We have like a, a journal in the firehouse, so they know you were there. And get a bus and get down get down to City Hall uh, or, you know, City Hall Park and then deploy. So we did. We, we got a bus, and we, um, we raced over the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, as we were racing over the bridge – um, we watched the second tower come down in horror and we kind of knew that we lost a lot of our friends. And, you know, for me personally, I live with a lot of guilt, I guess. And, and I felt like I failed my friends. Um, you know, we never leave anybody behind, but, um, we didn't get there in time to, to help them. We, we got there in time to search for them and unfortunately subsequently bring home some of their bodies because a lot of them were never found. So, you know, aside from that, I still loved every minute of that department because, you know, we were getting paid to help people. And, um, you know, I just I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. I felt like a pro ball player, like, wow, I'm getting paid to play this game of of life, of, of you know, helping people, saving people, you know, making a difference. And uh, since the job's gone away, I, I almost feel sometimes a little bit like I'm just wandering lost, you know, when you're a little kid and you lose sight of your parents in a department store for that brief couple of minutes and that, that, that fear of uncertainty. And you're just like, it's sort of this now, you know, and I'm out of the job a long time, but I still haven't 
gotten it uh, down to being out. You know, they train you in everything, everything to whatever it is you might face in your day, you're trained in, except one thing, how to retire. There's just no manual. There's no class. You just, you walk out and um, it's like, wow, you got to figure it out. Thank you for walking us through those events. I know it's, it's difficult for you. There was so much chaos and obviously so many people were in shock, myself included. First responders are human like the rest of us. So how do you set aside your emotions and fears and run toward the danger to help others? You know, I don't know, Chris. I don't, I don't know. There's, that's another thing that there's just no manual for, um, you know, every one of us that's hired brand new, you know, although some guys will try to tell you they've done the job and know the job since they were born, you know, they're full of it. Right. But no one was born with that knowing how to do and how to react. And what I think what winds up happening is in your training, uh, I've noticed this in the military, police and fire, you're sort of broken down to a very, very low level. Like, you you, you know, you've got drill instructors and drill sergeants screaming at you. And, you know, I don't know if that happens as much now. We're in a little bit more of a, you know, feelings world, you know. Um, but, you know, back when I came up, I mean, there were some hard ass trainers. And, you know, initially you're hating them, right? You're like, why is this guy messing with me all day long? But then you sort of realize when you get out there into the real world, like, okay, they, they've remolded me into someone I wasn't. And you now have your guys and, you know, there's girls and your, your crew, you know, and you just so never want to let them down. You know, you, you, I say this to people, I'm sorry, I'm kind of veering a little bit, but I say this to people, I have a couple of friends in the corporate world and one of them expressed to me, you know, I go to work every day and I don't think there's one person in my firm that would willingly die for me today. And I said, well, you know what? They're not getting paid to die for you. He goes, no, but it doesn't matter. It's not in them to, to make that sacrifice. And I went, you know, I'm sorry. But I said, I went to work every day for you know, almost 25 years or combined, a little more than that. And just about every single person um, next to me, because there was a couple people that were faking. And I hate to say that, but they, they took it as a job, you know, uh, very, very few of those people. So I don't want to get hate mail out of it. But 99.9% of my colleagues would willingly die for me that day or any day. But more profound than that is they would die for a complete stranger. And I, I found that incredible that, you know, they wouldn't look up at a window of a burning tenement and say, excuse me, who'd you vote for last time? Or, uh, you know, what's your what's your religion or your, your ethnic background or your sexual identity or whatever? They never happened. They, they just wouldn't happen. And it won't happen today. Right. You got people around this country and around the world that are, are putting on bulletproof vests, you know, fire department bunker gear, black jackets and helmets in the military, you know, medics with, you know, stethoscopes and, and trauma bags. And they're showing up to work with the willingness to die for complete strangers. Or as I say, to give up every one of their tomorrows so someone else will have one. And I, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. So that that concept and theory just fueled me to, I won't lie and say there wasn't fear, because you'd be something wrong with you psychologically if there wasn't some sort of fear. But you were shrouded and surrounded with, you know, your team that you knew was just not going to turn their back and abandon you. So I think that's sort of the common denominator amongst, as I call them, the warrior class, military first responder, uh, and, you know, you got emergency room doctors, nurses, people, and, you know, they're receiving the, the damage we bring in. They all sort of have that 
it's that feeling of never want to let down the team, but also an inner sense of uh, they just want to serve humanity and the public. They want to make a difference. And uh, that's, I think, what drove me, you know. Um, but then what happens is when you go home or you retire and you're not within their cloak of safety or you're not sitting around that firehouse table busting each other's chops, you know, all lovingly, you know, um, just that jocular, you know, chop breaking mentality. And, you know, you know it, you, you've been around, you've seen it. And, you know, um, once you step away from that, that's when your mind starts to race. And that's when maybe some fear will set in because now you're like, Oh, how am I handling this? I'm not with my team by myself. As the day of September 11th ended, or maybe it was even a few days later after you'd begun to process things, was there a particular moment in time or a person on 9-11 that stuck out in your mind? Well, there was so many, there was so many flashes of, of you know, guys that I lost or, or you know, we're looking for. My, you know, my childhood best friend, John Sharp with Engine 201. We found, you know, within five days, we realized that, you know, they're, they're not coming home, right? I mean... You know, we have a pass alarm, which is the warning device on your 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 air tank, which if you stop, you'll collapse down, say, and you're motionless for 30 seconds. It'll continually ring until either you shut it off manually or someone finds you and shuts it off. And those pass alarms, they rang and rang. It was just this, sque this squeal, you know, screech for days underneath the debris. And we realized... They're, they're, the guys are under there and we can't get them and they're, they're gone. And then the batteries died and then we were, started finding them. So it was profound. John was, was one of the only guys who was found intact physically. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't find whole bodies. And he was, he was found on Christmas Eve and he was buried on New Year's Eve. And, and I had the high honor of holding the American flag at his funeral service and it was it was a cold day it was near i may have been five degrees it was just frigid and i remember holding the flag and my hands just started to freeze up like with frostbite and we're standing there for a good 45 minutes straight as you know as the case on comes down they take the coffin off and they process it with respect you know six guys carry the coffin in bagpipes are playing it, it it's a process you know it's it's our ritual of respect for our fallen and i just remember my instinct was to just you know put that flag down and, and you know warm my hands up but i was like no i would rather die right now than to disrespect my friend and i stood as rigid and you know at respect and attention as i could and i just remember like you know after he was processed in and then we broke ranks and went in after them I didn't even feel the pain because I was still alive and John wasn't. So that, that moment resonates. But just prior to that, it's, it's the moment. It was like, I guess you can say almost like a God moment for me. Um, I was temporarily reassigned to South street seaport uh, firehouse, which is tower ladder 15 and engine company four who, who lost 14 members that morning. And uh, the department asked guys to take temporary assignments to sort of fill in and help help them get back on their feet. So I think within a week, uh, I was re-signed. I asked to go down there because one of my trainees from Brooklyn, Jimmy Ritchie's, was sent over there for a year in Engine 4 to train, and he was one of the, the fallen of the 14. 
And uh, probably around the first, I might get the date wrong, but in and around the first week or so of October, um, Captain Rochelle Jones, who is the company commander of Engine 4 and um, and the overall house commander, you know, with Town Ladder 15, she, she subsequently went up to be the first female battalion chief in FDNY. Her dad was a retired firefighter and just an incredible, incredible leader. Um, we call her Rocky and I call it a rock. She was the rock. Incredible. Just the way she held that house together. You know, 14 guys, families coming in on a daily basis. And, and she had the horrible task of basically informing the family that they were now considered dead in the line of duty and they needed to come in and sign off on their pensions. So one day, Captain Rocky, she asked me to walk around this little five and a half year old boy who was the surviving son of uh, firefighter Paul Tetmeyer. And I never had the honor of meeting Paul. And his Paul's wife was inside with Captain Jones, basically filling out, as we called the paperwork. So Rocky knew I had children. And she said, would you mind just, you know, showing him around the trucks? And, and I said, yeah, of course. And I'm walking this little man around and he's wearing this little you know, mini fire outfit and, you know, just emulating his dad. And I sort of related. And as we walked around, he said, can you please show me where my daddy was sitting before he died? And I didn't really, I couldn't really explain to him that that morning he was sent up to another engine to fill in at the last minute because when, you know, with our staffing and whatnot. So it was a little too much information for this little fellow, but I knew that he went to an engine and he probably 100% would get the backup position, which means you sit with your back to the driver, the chauffeur. So I sat him up in, in the backup position seat and he just, he leaned down and he put his hands on his head and he was silent for like 30 seconds. And I was starting to get a little concerned. I, I, I didn't know how to handle it, you know, but as a parent, I realized he was just, you know, he was just in a moment and he was so stoic and brave and he's five right and he leans up and he goes okay Nils, my daddy's okay now can we go back and see my mommy and now i'm starting to you know uh i'm, I'm a big guy who's not scared to show his emotions you know and and i'm starting to tear up and i'm trying to hold it together and i walk up and there's his mom and there's captain jones and, and cap looks at me because everything okay i said yes ma'am it's okay and uh you know he uh he smiled and he took his mom's hand and I, I just said, ma'am, I'm so sorry about your husband. I didn't know him, but if, if there's anything we might do, please call us. And uh, they walked in to clean out his locker. And I snuck upstairs to the gym and man, I, I had one of the biggest cries of my life because here I was looking at this little, little guy, this little soldier of a man. And I got my four and a half year old daughter and my one year old son home at the time with their mom and they're safe and their dad's still alive, you know? So a month later we, we, we have, you know, Paul service and there's this little man again and he's dressed in a little fire department outfit and, and he's following his father's case on and I'm God, my God almighty, this kid is stronger and tougher than, than me. I flash forward and never ran into him again. And, uh, 2020, I had the honor of being asked to host a tribute podcast for the guys, for the department, for 9-11 stories called 20 for 20. And we did 20 different stories involving people who were there. And it was it was really one of the highlights of my life. 
I got to know so much about these people that gave everything and, and, you know, what their families went through. But more than that, the good that they took out of that horrible event and put into the world. And as I was doing some research um, on the night of 9-10-2021, I came across an article in the New York Post that said, excuse me, there was now 63 children of FDNY members that were lost on 9-11 and are now serving the department. And I know Firefighter Saro from Engine 54 Midtown has four children now on a job, his daughter and his three sons. I mean, it's just, and I didn't know him, but just incredible. And as I scroll down the story, I look, and there's this young firefighter, and his name's Eric Tetmeyer. His father was Paul Tetmeyer, killed in Engine 4. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh, my God, this, this is this little, this little man. And I walked around, and now he's a full-grown man, and, you know, he, he's, he's working in a Bronx truck. And I couldn't believe it. And I, I was kindly enough asked on an interview um, on a job podcast that guys put together and they have guys come back, talk about the job. And they were kind of asking me what was going on with 20 for 20. And they asked me to tell, you know, one of my toughest moments, I guess. And I, I conveyed the story I just did to you. And I said, you know, man, I, I really would just love to shake his hand someday and just say, you know, I really admire your courage and strength. Well, turns out his captain was listening to the podcast and he said, Hey, Eric, you need, you need to listen to this. And two days later, I'm on the phone with him and we have this two and a half hour conversation. And that little five and a half year old man was now this stoic, just, you know, I guess at the time now he's getting close to 27, 26. And, and, you know, um, I just said to him, I'm sorry you didn't grow up with your dad my kids did. And I, and I feel terrible about that. And he said, Hey Nels, he goes, I was surrounded by love. He goes, I didn't really realize my dad was gone because I was just so just cloaked in, in goodness and love. And, you know, and he goes, it, it, it just, it didn't really resonate as, uh, you know, trauma. It, it, it was almost a good experience. And he goes, but you guys had to go back down there and deal with our families and then go dig. And then now everyone, you know, Fast forward 10 years later, I was getting sick, cancer, whatever. He goes, it's tougher on you guys than it was on me. And I was just like, wow, just blew me away. So we were, we were trying to, um, we we're trying to get together in person. And I promised him I'd get a couple people that knew his dad. And, you know, cause I said, I, I, I can't tell you about your dad. I didn't know him. Well, just, just last week, I got the opportunity to meet Eric and, uh, shake his hand and give him a long overdue hug. And man, he was just even more than I expected. And, you know, we sat with, with Captain Jones and we sat with another dear friend, Gene Zukal, who is actually the last remaining member of the South Street Firehouse that served on 9-11, who's still currently there. And we, you know, we sat for hours and we had lunch and we, we were at a little talk for the, for the Valor program. And, um, just just one of the highlights of my life and it, and it, it took it took 22 years to come full circle now the circle's completed and i'll i'll be in touch with this young man for the rest of my life and i just yeah that was probably the, the most powerful thing i took away from 9-11 and the blessing is it's a good thing in the end it was a good thing 343 of new york's bravest were lost that day and you talked about 63 children of those lost 
are now serving. That's a pretty big number. Did that number surprise you when you're doing your research? It actually did. And you know, Chris, I, I can't quote you the number it is now, but it's even higher. I think since then, there's been, because, you know, that was that was two years ago. Uh, I think since then, there's like another 10 or 12. So you're looking at about 75 you know, children who, you know, some of them were were in their infancy. You know, some of them, their moms were pregnant. You know, uh, one of my colleagues, and I love the man, he, he trained me in the job. When I started was Frank Palumbo. Frank had 10 children and he was in ladder 105 and he was killed with Dennis Jr. and Hank Miller. And Frank now has two sons that are on the department. So I, I just find that so uplifting that out of this tragedy and losing their father, that they'd still want to follow him. But that's the impact that all fathers make on their children. You know, I'm a big proponent of fatherhood. It's, it's, you know, huge, but when, when you witness your father in, in a career that, that, you know, tries to make a difference and tries to help, you know, a lot of kids just end up wanting to be even daughters, you know, that want to be like their dad or if their mom's a firefighter, they want to keep that. They want to perpetuate that service and that legacy. And um, yeah, so that's, that's one of the beautiful silver linings again to come out of the tragedy of 9 11 like these great young souls that just want to give back i mean that's that's powerful goes back to you being five years old in bay ridge waving to the guys with the mustaches on the trucks yeah man even though they beat me every time i raced them, i still <laughs> wanted to be them you know and you know i go to the firehouse to see my dad and i, I call them the giants with mustaches because you know you're you're five and you're tipping in at about three feet tall, right? And looking up at these big dudes and, you know, they'd be fussing on you and putting you on a truck, putting a helmet on and the gear smells with smoke and it's, some of it's still wet from a job, a fire or a job as we call it, they just came back from. And, you know, just, I don't know, there's like this whole just grouping of, of smells and sounds and the firehouse is a unique place. And I just, yeah, I wanted to beat them, man. And that's, that's what happens. It just gets in you, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's a real good thing. One of the many things I remember was the blinding choking dust when the towers collapsed. Can you describe the extent of the toxic chemicals and other substances you and other responders were exposed to while working at Ground Zero that day and during the aftermath? Yes, Chris. Um, I'll give it to you my best layman's description because I was not a good chemistry, uh, you know, biology student back Next in high two school. Two of us. That's right. As, as I remember, Mr. Burke saying to me in uh, my my junior year of chemistry, I ended up with an eighty nine, and he said, "Nails, that's a miracle." And he's right, it was. But uh, <laughs> thanks, Mr. Burke. But yeah, so so the the we knew immediately uh, just breathing the stuff in. It was just caustic and toxic. And I remember, you know, we we dug the guys from 114, the off-duty crew. We stayed on till next morning, about six in the morning. And we literally, at that point, could not breathe, could not see. We were just useless on the pile. So our lieutenant at the time just said, guys, we need to go back. We need to clean up, regroup. You know, because when you're, when you're just at a physical point of being spent, and, and, you know, at that point, it was even medically because we just couldn't breathe, you're useless. And I remember we took a bus ride back to Brooklyn and we were walking up a hill to the firehouse because they dropped us off at 201, my friend's engine, which is one block and one avenue away from ladder 114, the old firehouse, but they're now actually combined in a new building. 
And as we're walking up the hill from 201, we just, we were struggling. We were really struggling breathing. And I said to one of the guys, I said, I feel like I swallowed a box of razor blades. My, I can't breathe. And, and my, my chest on up through my mouth was on fire. And one of the older guys, Danny, he said, oh, we're all dead. I said, no, Dan, we, we got out. We made it. He goes, no, nah, no, nah, kid, this is going to kill us all. This is poison. And he wasn't so far off the mark, you know, uh, the 28 guys who served in 114 that day, I think just maybe 15 or 16 of us with cancer or advanced lung disease, but it's mostly cancer. But they call us the lucky truck because we're still alive, those sick guys. There's other engines, a lot of companies that maybe had five guys that had cancer, but two of them are dead or three of them are dead at five or seven. Um, it's hard to explain what it was, but it, it was almost like this toxic, just dust or sand. Um, it had a smell of it. And a lot of that was from combustion products, but also from human remains. Unfortunately, I don't mean to be so graphic. And uh, it just, you know, we all ended up with a cough and, and this lingering like chest infection for weeks into the fall of 2001. And I remember my wife, uh she she was pregnant and my friend john who passed his wife was pregnant at the same time and on the morning of 9 11 both of us didn't know we we're having another child so when we were going to the baby doctor uh i had become friends with him over the years he you know delivered all three of my children and i guess it was sometime into maybe december of 2001 where uh, a medical scientist took a sample of the dust from from nine I, I hate to say ground zero that's where the world trade center but um and he analyzed it and he did a readout of the chemicals he found the compounds and what they could potentially do to you and i remember benzene just jumping off you know benzene is found i guess it's a byproduct of combustion it's found in fuels um petroleum-based products specifically diesel and jet fuel kerosene and that was one of the main ones diesel uh, excuse me benzene was just off the graph just resonating like huge amounts of it um there was very high metals uh that were picking up on the readings uh, mercury you know magnesium or i don't i'm sorry magnesium but uh iron all these metal compounds that are not good for your blood and I remember I had the, the newspaper article and I showed it to Dr. Adam and I said, Hey doc, you know, can you tell me your thoughts? And he looked, he looked at it, he read it and it was 30 compounds listed. And he looked at me very matter of a fact. And he said, listen, I'm speaking to you as your friend, not as your family's doctor. Do not have any more children. And he said, because and he started naming them. This does this, this does this, this does this. And he goes, I hate to say this, but you're going to have cancer. And it wasn't even a matter of he said, you might get cancer. He said, you're going to have cancer. And he shook me and he scared me. And he said, stay up on your medicals, be vigilant. He goes, this, this is, you guys were exposed to, you know, when you watch the old Bugs Bunny, you know, the, the bottle with the skull and bones on it, right? That's poison. He goes, you were exposed to that. He goes, it's bad. And, you know, Dr. Dr. Adam, as I call him, you know, I uh, won't give his last name just because he's a humble kind of guy. But, you know, he was right. Um, we started coming down cancer in droves in 05. Uh, 
03 or 04, but there was a couple little, you know, but but we didn't chalk those early guys off to the to the site. We just chalked it off to, hey, guys get cancer in a fire service. And worse than that, and the dirty rotten secret of it all is a lot of guys who had children post 9-11 who, who conceived their child, say, in, you know, 02, 03, there's been a lot of problems with the children. And it's it's kind of like hidden, you know, no one wants to say it because now that comes with a price, right? It took us years to fight for our medical coverage. And we finally, by the grace of God, did get it. But now if they open up the next can of worms, which is, well, there's a lot of guys coming down with autoimmunes, that's not covered. And worse than that, the children of the responders, that's not covered. And that scares me because... I think it's something that needs to be addressed. But to get back to your your, your question, what we were exposed to was poison. Um, and my circle of friends, we all in conversation will say, it's just, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we're, we're going to get hit. Uh, we've, we've all been poisoned. And I used to call it running through a minefield. When am I stepping on my mind? Because I saw guys around me starting to come down. And in 2011, I, I stepped on my mind, so to speak. But by the grace of God, I'm staying ahead of mine. But there's there's guys right now as we speak. There's a handful of our guys in hospice. Um, we just we just put the 341st firefighters name on the memorial board and headquarters the other day. So we're going to surpass cancer deaths to the deaths that day pretty soon. But when you look at the aggregate number of first responders and recovery workers, the folks from the trades and who came down to volunteer to help us, to give us food, to give us clothing. To, and then, you know, the iron workers who took the pieces of steel away from the pile so we could get in and search. And there's now well over 3,000 of those folks, inclusive of fire, police, EMS, that have died of mostly 9-11 cancers. And, you know, some people you'll hear the comments, oh, when's it enough? You know, you guys are getting your medical coverage and, you know, some of you guys got settlements and this and that. And you know what? I would I would just give anything and I give everything back to get back on my truck with my health and not on a daily basis worry about, you know, I'm due for my next cancer screening uh, scans, blood work in about four weeks. And, you know, I haven't been feeling so great lately, but a lot of that has to do with, you know, I gained a lot of weight. I got lazy after COVID. Um, but my buddies who are sick, we're all on that razor's edge of, is it coming back or am I actually going to get my first cancer? Um, I have a friend of mine, three cancers, and he's gone. He, he started out with throat, got ahead of it, got into his spinal column, got ahead of it, got into his lungs. It took him. Guy was an oak. Ronnie Shrek was six foot five, 250 pounds. I mean, he's the guy you want pulling you out, right? When you're, when you're trapped in there and poor Ronnie just fought and fought. And the cruel thing is he got retired, regular you know, service. And within six months, he was with cancer. So he never, he never got to live his fisherman's dream of going to Florida and, you know, bone fishing and, and, you know, marlin fishing and whatever. He never got it. And, uh, He's just one of many, many guys. You have an expression that's especially powerful as you talk about first responders, mental health, and emotional well-being. You say this, quote, sometimes 
someone needs to rescue the rescuers. Why? What do you mean yes. by that? You know, Chris, we're, we're in this world of uh, people call 911 and we show up, right? We show up for their worst moment. We try to fix and handle every situation that is thrown upon us. And nine times out of 10, that involves helping someone and hopefully bringing them resolution. Um, you know, we can't always save their burning building. We can't always save their loved one, but we'll kill ourselves in the process. And then what happens occasionally is, um, you know, guys in the trade, in the warrior class, military, police, fire, EMS, we don't really worry about, like, we break our arm, break our leg, we'll put on a cast, we'll be out on medical for, you know, six weeks, and we come back, go right back to work. Sometimes the emotional and the mental fractures, first of all, aren't obvious to anyone, right? You don't see them. You don't see a guy hurting or a girl hurting until they go, time out. I need some help. And what happens is the those scars are actually more damaging than the physical injuries because most of the time we're too embarrassed to say, hey, I, I need I need some help here, you know. And then unfortunately what happens is those those mental and emotional fractures now start taking a huge toll. Um guys and girls then resort to substance abuse, alcoholism. Uh, you know, their family uh, relationships start to break apart because they're suffering internally and they're too proud to admit there's something really going on. But worse than that, they're fearful of the stigma that's attached to when you finally say, hey, Chris, you're my supervisor. I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm in a bad way. What do I do? They're so fearful of that moment of reaching out and, and asking for that life preserver. And I, I think most of it because of the stigma. Um, society has a weird uh, response to mental illness. Uh, it's it's still kind of taboo, right? In, in most circles, most, you know, uh, employment, family, relationship circles, you know, the minute you say, hey, I'm, I'm hurting, can you help me? You know, a lot of people run for the exits, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not ashamed to say that I, you know, I've sought counseling uh, after 9-11, uh, went to it for quite a while, but never, you know, never took a day off the truck because thankfully I wasn't at such a level that it was uh, debilitating. Uh, there was days after 9-11, I was really down. I was really just, really a lot of it was my guilt. Like, what the hell am I still doing here? And why is John gone? Why is this other guy gone? But but I got past that, I think, because <clears throat> I was so busy trying to go down there, you know, uh, go to work, go to my regular shifts, go to the memorials, then go down and dig on your own time to, as we would say, bring the guys home, you know, find their remains and all those other people, those civilians. But once the once the Trade Center shut down, it was complete in, in you know, late May of uh, 2002. Now, all of a sudden, it's like there's more time to dwell on, you know, what happened to you down there? What did you see? What did you get exposed to? Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, certain smells will throw you right back there because, you know, we called it the smell of death. Um, so for me, then, uh, um, <clears throat> getting cancer was kind of like almost a crushing blow because I was now off the department. I was now not amongst my safety net of my guys on a daily basis. 
and I was medically in a bad spot. I mean, I, I received, you know, two and a half years of chemo in seven days and my body and my mind are wrecked, but the drugs did their job and I'm still here today. But I remember shortly after getting out of the cancer hospital, I didn't get out of bed for four days. I physically was not really up to just jumping up and facing the day, but it was more, it was more my emotional injury. I lost my priesthood. I lost my job. I, this is what I do. Like it wasn't an ego thing by any means, but it was my calling in life was just gone in a flash and I didn't know how to handle it. And I was depressed and I was really not in a great place. And, you know, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't put my family through a lot between the days of and after 9-11, but worse, after cancer. And, you know, finally, I've been married 32 years. Uh, my wife is the daughter of a firefighter, so she sort of got me from the beginning, right? Thank God. And, of course, my mother-in-law, who's since passed, lovely woman, she... She told her all our, you know, all of our little, you know, scams and stuff, you know, oh, you know I'm, I'm being held on overtime. And my mother was like, no, they're in the pub having Guinness, you know, don't buy that crap. Right. But uh, she she was very understanding. But she finally said to me, what's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you just you're you're not yourself. You're a wreck. Don't you know you're 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 alive. You're in remission. And I said, but yeah, I lost my job. It's gone. She goes, well, I'm sorry that happened, but you're alive and you're in remission. And, I, you know, I finally just had that God moment when I went, you know, I need to stop feeling sorry for myself. I am. I still have this blessed gift of life. So, you know, after talking it out, you know, with a counselor, you know, I'm, I'm a very... uh I'm a very faithful guy. I, mean, I was raised Irish Catholic and, and I, you know, I don't preach or infuse my religion upon anyone. But, you know, if there's anyone who wants to talk about it, I will. So some of my friends were having, you know, doubts of faith and we got real tight and talking about it. And, and, and then I went, you know, to speak to a couple of clergy people that just asked them about some of the mysteries I had about why. And you know, it all started to become more clear to me. So, the way I was able to heal myself, I guess you could say, I still have the fractures, but they're healed. I now try to counsel my group of friends or, or other guys that I really didn't know so well, but they're not ashamed to reach out to me because they know that I'm not going to judge them and there's no stigma. And I'll just say, hey, listen, bro, I know how you're feeling. You know, it's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to let it out. I said, because the worst thing you have you can do is keep this bottled up. And, you know, I guess it is a touches of PTSD. Um, I've been blessed to never have it to a crippling level. I know guys who have it to a crippling level. And, you know, I won't lie to you. It, you know, sometimes your phone rings, you look down, it's the guy who's hurting. You know, you're going to have to devote a couple hours now to, to, to talking them through. And it's selfish. I will never not pick up. But it's selfish of me on a day when maybe there's stuff going on or whatever. You know, there's been a couple of times I was on the way out the door with my wife to a certain event. And I say, I, I can't go. And she, you know, she's like, I, she gets it now. But my personal therapy is to help the other guys who are scared of the stigma if they went a step further. But what I do then is I, I will, once I gain their trust, confidence, I'll say, look, we need to go here. You need a, a higher level of 
of assistance, of therapy, and what it may be. And unfortunately, now a lot of it is um, guys needing, you know, uh, inpatient therapy, you know, uh, treatment for alcohol, treatment for drugs. They need to go away. But I think as time is going on, guys are becoming more aware that there's no shame in saying, hey, help me, time out. Nils, we've got about two minutes left. Before we spoke at the beginning of the show today, there was a first responder we lost on 9-11 that you wanted to quote. Yes, uh, uh, Rick Rascorla, um, his family had, you know, asked, I, I wanted to dedicate this to Rick. Rick was the safety director for Morgan Stanley, uh, security director on the morning of 9-11. And he was actually with Tower Ladder 15 up on the 78th floor, evacuating uh, people. They were actually on the radio, the fire department radio, back and forth, and they, they mentioned him being with them. And Rick went back in and didn't have to, and he died with, with Tower Ladder 15. But he had said to his security men earlier that when, when everything was going down, he said, today is a day to be proud to be an American. Tomorrow the world will be looking at you. And Rick was right. And unfortunately, he didn't get his tomorrow because he gave it up for others. And they actually successfully did get people down that morning. And, you know, it's just an honor. I didn't know Rick, but to know that there was people like him who really weren't obligated to stay, but did. And uh, it's incredible, you know? So, so part of the reason why I take any chance I can, you're kind enough to, to, you know, have me here. I just, just don't want people to forget, you know, someone said to me, you know, well, why do you keep talking about 9-11? Don't you get tired of it? And I said, I wish I didn't have to talk about 9-11, but I will continue talking about it until my day comes because I just don't want the best of Americans forgotten. And I don't want the guys and girls who are out there hurting to think that no one cares because they do. And that that pertains to responders and military all around the world, current, retired. You know, if you're hurting, find someone you, you trust and tell them, let them know, hey, I need a hug and I need to talk. But don't sit and suffer with it on a day-to-day -day basis because it's almost like a cancer. If you don't treat it, you're going to die. Nils Jorgensen. Thank you for your service and sacrifice, and thank you for being with us today. Chris, thank you for what you do for military and responders, and I really appreciate you having me. It was an honor. I'm Chris Meek. Let us never forget. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.